You're listening to Data Plus Love. This week, I have a very special guest. I promoted him as a luminary of data on Twitter, and I don't feel like I'm blowing smoke there. Uh, today, I have with me Ben Jones. If the name doesn't sound familiar, you're probably newer to the data game. Um, ben, in terms of the Tableau community specifically, worked at Tableau for six years where he was instrumental in um, establishing Tableau Public, where he worked as a director of outreach programs and eventually an evangelism director. But more recently, Ben has established um, Data Literacy, where he is both the founder and CEO, and has, at this point, I'm going to say a multitude of books, because you had Data Pitfalls, you have Data Literacy Fundamentals, Learning to See Data, and at least one more. Um, so I'm going to say you're a renaissance man. Welcome to the show, Ben. How are you today? Hey, thanks, Zach. Doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to be talking with you. So it's not uh, it's not often I get to talk to someone who is so instrumental in making something that I love so much. Um, so I'm really excited to have someone that um, was so involved with the Tableau community programs, because I know to me, both Tableau Public as a tool and the community that has spun out of that have had such a positive impact, both on my career and my life, um, that I'm really excited to be talking with someone that was so heavily involved with that. And uh, you've done so many amazing things since then that uh, I'm fanboying a bit here. So I'm really excited <laughs> to talk to you. Well, the feeling's mutual. Uh, congratulations to you, Zach, for winning the the gold star, the top award in the Data Literacy Awards a podcast from last year. So it's nice for me to be able to chat with someone who launched a podcast and just made such an impact right away. So it's it's kind of cool for me to be here on the show with you too. So And thank you for all the kind words. And I definitely share your enthusiasm for the Tableau world, the community, the products and platforms that they've put out there. It's changed my career and my life as well. So we're in the same boat there. I mean, you, um, I was looking at your public portfolio uh, before coming on because I was thinking Ben's probably not doing that much these days, but I didn't realize you already had like 177 public visits out there. And I don't know how many of those came from a product of you working at Tableau and thinking, you know, I got to produce stuff and I've got to, you know, basically demo different features versus I'm feeling inspired in the moment. I think this would be something fun to do. So like, what's the ratio on that for you? Oh God, it's probably 80% fun projects, really. Um, my personal Tableau public portfolio, we have one with our business too, which is almost all related to products and, and courses we train. But my personal uh, Tableau public portfolio is just full of fun side projects. Little interesting to me anyway, uh, questions that popped up about who knows what, you know, who had more points, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. I would just get an idea while I was driving, listening to the radio. And that was actually the case before I moved up here to the Seattle area from Los Angeles. That's what I had been doing uh, and publishing them on my own blog. And so when I had the opportunity to move up here and join and help uh, run that program, at least the marketing side of it, um, it was like a dream come true, you know, sort of turning a hobby into a career at that point. And, uh, you know, they were great at, you know, just letting me continue to do that. I didn't feel so overburdened with the the day-to-day -day job that I wasn't able to still have a lot of fun with the platform and chase down some of those quizzical, interesting little questions that came up in my mind. So, yeah, I think if you go to the, the portfolio, you'll find mostly weird little side projects of mine. So your journey into data seems pretty nonlinear. And I'm seeing nowadays a lot more people start off in the data-related field. It seems like there's a lot more of a pathway in straight from education. 
I saw that for you, you've been at Medtronic for quite some time, which my sister-in-law is also in biomedical. She works at Smith and nephew, which is one of the competitors of Medtronic. So I'm aware of that, but, um, it seems like you sort of came into Tableau from the marketing angle. Were you always a guy that was really into data back when you were in marketing at Medtronic or is this something that sort of transitioned? No, totally. Uh, it's funny, actually, when I was at, um, Medtronic, uh, I was actually, uh, Smith and nephew was a key uh, product of mine because I was helping market the consumables, uh, part of the diabetes business. So, you know, uh, skin wipes and things like that. But, um, yeah, no. So my journey really, you know, mechanical engineering into product design, into 3d product design, into, this Six Sigma world, Lean Sigma. So uh, that was at Medtronic when I made that jump into process and continuous improvement and started to realize at that point, the power and the value of data, you know, working with process owners to look at their processes, whether we're trying to remove defects or wasteful process steps or time, uh, understanding at that moment in time that when I would look at data with someone, you know, the light bulb moment would happen for them. And um, that also introduced me to ways to train and effectively teach groups of people. Uh, So I moved into the marketing role as I was finishing up my MBA there at Medtronic because of the data, really. I mean, that was really my passion. And working with the consumables line, as I mentioned, the volume of the transactions was very, very, very high. So I got to really combine. And actually, while I was in marketing, it was re- running a business analytics and intelligence group within the marketing department at Medtronic Diabetes. And so it was always about data and it was also about training. It was always about using data to improve outcomes and processes and learn about what's happening. And so at that point in time, you know, we were using some products in Medtronic and uh, I guess that was a while ago. So it doesn't really matter what they were or weren't, but I discovered this thing called Tableau. It's actually, I, I called up a, a person whose website I really uh, admired. Uh, his name was um, Alex Curran, and he had a website, and he had won a contest where he made an interactive dashboard. And I was really looking forward to getting into publishing my own thoughts and ideas on the web. And so I just reached out to him out of the blue, and I said, hey, Alex, would you give me half an hour of your time? I just want to know what you did and how you did it. And he was really gracious to me. We had a chat, and uh, at the end of the, you know, he was using at that time something called ProtoViz. I don't know if your readers know about ProtoViz. It's kind of a precursor to D3. Okay, so coding. And I'd embraced the fact that I was going to need to learn coding for me to be able to put interactive data on the web. But at the very end, this was in 2011, the very end of the conversation, he said to me, oh, by the way, before you go learn ProtoViz, I would recommend you just download this thing called Tableau Public. Have you ever heard of it? And I said, well, no, I never. I don't know what that is. He said, well, just go to tableaupublic.com and download it. It's only for Windows. At that time, it was only for Windows, which was fine because that's all I'd ever used back then. But uh, I was like, oh, let's give it a try. I could not believe how easy and quick it was for me to get a pretty cool interactive visualization about my childhood hero, Wayne Gretzky, up on the web. It was, it was mind-blowing. And, and then not only that, embedded into my WordPress site as if it were a YouTube video blown away. I couldn't believe it. So at that point I was hooked and started just cranking them out and publishing them to my little blog, dataremixed.com, which is I think getting a little dusty. But then I started to get on Twitter and realize that there's a growing group of people that are doing the same thing. And I was like, wow, cool. Learning from people, connecting with others and just seeing that whole space grow, you know? So that's kind of my journey. And then realizing that if I really wanted to go farther in data, I was gonna to have to leave medical devices and actually join a data company. You know, that that was really, I think, a, a big step for me is saying, well, you know, if that's something I want to do uh, full-time in my career, 
then I'm going to need to make a switch out of the industry that I'm in into a different one, business intelligence. And luckily, I got the chance to do that. And I'm real thankful that uh, Tableau brought me, my family all the way up here. And uh, we love it here now. Seattle's a great place. And, um, you know, we've been able to continue to grow into this um, this data world and, you know, now starting my own thing. So, yeah, it's been a fun journey. But that's the, I guess that's the whole thing in a nutshell, not to, not to belabor it. But what a ride it's been. I've had a blast. Not at all. So uh, the great one, great Wayne Gretzky brought us the great one, Ben Jones, which uh, <laughs> I'm thankful for. That is an interesting journey, though, because I hear so many different stories about how people got into this field. I came into it uh, from IT. Um, so I started as a coder and found I hated that. I had uh, gone to business school and had degrees in MIS and marketing. So I was somewhere in the middle, right? I was both technically proficient, but could also like talk um, so I was, where, where do I find a fusion that can, uh, amalgamate most of these things? And it took about 10 years in it before I actually found analytics and thought, wow, this is so much better than, um, just coding all the time because, you know, you, you don't get to create something uh, expressive for the front end. You don't get to use a lot of those analytical capabilities. You don't get to, uh, interface with humans as much, um, so it's really exciting to uh, hear your story in terms of that. So uh, you end up at Tableau and yeah. you can't, your door in is through marketing. Right. How do you become so involved in sort of the evangelism aspects of Tableau and the sort of yeah. community aspects? Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't really ever think of myself as a marketer. I just more felt of myself as a data person. And uh, Ellie Fields, who hired me to work on the Tableau public platform, you know, our charter as a team was to grow this community. And to do that, we felt we needed to be active, be involved ourselves in the community ourselves, me and others like Jewel, uh, Loray and Dan Hom, and, and just super talented people uh, that I got a chance to work with. And so it was really more about being active members of the community, creating our own cool visas, you know, and just having fun with it. So um, so yeah, the marketing side of it, you know, that was important too. We needed to think about how to grow the platform. We needed to think about ways we could promote its usage. It wasn't really a traditional marketing role though, because the pro the product is free. <laughs> so in some ways I thought, oh my gosh, I, you know, there's this company. It's amazing. It's growing. I get to be the one to quote unquote market its free product. How hard can that be? Right? So, uh, you know, it wasn't like we were really great at buying AdWords or no, we didn't do that. We did that by developing a community. We did that by investing in the community. We did that by creating cool stuff and making little contests for people, making helpful blog posts and tutorials ourselves that would teach people how to use the product. So it was more just a marketing department had a team of data geeks. <laughs> And then we had a really unique charter, which was to just to go out there and, you know, and we got to travel and we got to train. We got to go to these amazing events and meet and greet and just become good friends with a lot of the people in the community. So it was, I, I tell people, you know, it really was that moment in time. I hope everyone feels this moment where they feel like I'm doing the exact thing I want to do. And that I feel like I'm actually uniquely positioned to do. And that's how it felt uh, for, for all those years at Tableau. And so I'm real thankful that I had that opportunity. So, I mean, it seems like across the course of your career and across many of the activities you've participated in, uh, teaching is an aspect yeah. of that. Whether when you were yeah. at Tableau, you're trying to inform and create enthusiasm for use of the product and say, look what it can do, look what you can do with it, um, yeah. to what you're doing now with data literacy, to also the teaching you're doing at, at universities. Um, yeah. 
is that something you always had interest in or has that been like a natural outflow of your own enthusiasm? Yeah, you know, it's so like I mentioned the Lean Sigma thing. And that's where I first started getting up in front of larger groups, training statistical concepts, data related concepts. But if I go dig, if I dig deep into my own personal background, I actually had the opportunity to uh, early in my life be part of an interesting uh, religious community that put me on a uh, stage to present and talk on a human level uh, from very early, early on, like teenage years, you know. So that helped me get over stage fright. That helped me learn how to connect with people and get to the core of the matter. That taught me some very important lessons about um, uh, engaging with people in that way. And then so moving into the data world, that was something I always loved. And so when um, a colleague of mine, Sean Boone, Sean is actually still at Tableau, I believe. He was he was in many years instrumental for leading the team that overhauled and just amazingly evolved the maps feature in Tableau. Uh, asked me to take over a class that he was teaching at the University of Washington. Now this was right after the first book, Communicating Data with Tableau. So he figured, oh, well, Ben, ben is interested in sharing you know, knowledge in that way. So, hey, Ben, you want to uh, take over this class. I don't have the bandwidth for it anymore. So I was like, sure, you know, so I did that. And then Tableau had me training journalists. So I had conferences on how to overcome data phobia and how to, you know, get past some of that and put data stories about the the stories of our times, we used to call it, you know, on the web. And then, uh, so yeah, training, teaching, that was always speaking, presenting. That was always part of what I just really enjoyed doing. And um, and so then, you know, that, I think that that has been helpful uh, for me in my current role really as head trainer of data literacy and course developer um, and still learning a lot, you know, it's just really connecting with people, making data interesting and fun, helping them overcome some very real fears about what it is and whether they're going to be successful. And those are uh, challenges that, uh, that I think are, are probably lifelong challenges for me, you know, to continue to, to hone that skill. Um, but I, I love it. You know, you get, like I said, that light bulb moment with a few people in the room or on zoom or whatever, or emailing you after. And it's just, it's really, really rewarding to have someone tell you that they feel like they now have what it takes to work with data. Um, even if you're a small part of that, I think you, you really realize that's, that's really valuable, uh, for them and for you. So, so as an author, you've got scads of books at this point. Um, I have many questions about writing, but first I, yeah. I appreciate that the topics you're tackling, you're tackling, tackling the topic of data from multiple perspectives, uh-huh. both from starting with communicating data with Tableau, which is from like the analyst's perspective, yeah. how to use this tool to communicate outward. But then in many ways you've turned to the other, to the receiving audience and said, here's how to receive and interpret mm-hmm. data because that's mm-hmm. just as vital. Um, even the most skilled and educated analysts in the world with a great understanding of their audience can be hamstrung by an audience that is unprepared to receive data or worse, um, ready to interpret it in dangerous ways, potentially. So, um, where did you sort of come to your approach on sort of, uh, choosing these audiences to, uh, to express to, because obviously you started with communicating data with Tableau. So sort of coming out of Tableau directly and continuing with that trend. Um, what, what brought you around to sort of cover multiple audiences with your approach? Yeah. So, uh, the, the fact is when I went to go leave Tableau to launch data literacy, I had, was, uh, had a really great conversation with RJ Andrews. RJ is on my advisory board. I'm really lucky to have his input and he's uh, the author, as many of you know, of info, we trust info, we trust.com 
really talented in many skills, very amazing bespoke work that he creates, but also just knowledgeable and deeply steeped in the history of data visualization. But I was preparing to you know, leave Tableau and I was running uh, my business plan by him and describing some of the first products we were going to be making out of the gate, which really was an analytics course, you know, how to analyze data well, not that title, but that was essentially the gist of what I thought was going to be my level one, you know, the, the flagship kind of entry level program. And he, I'm glad I had that conversation because he, he said something to me. He said, well, why don't you just start with a program on how to, how to read charts, Ben? There's so many people out there that just want to know how to read a chart better. And, um, you know, I remember being a little bit annoyed by that. I got to admit, you know, like, really, really, RJ, people don't know how to read charts. They got to know how to read charts. What am I going to do? Tell them how to read a bar chart. And he said, trust me. So, and then I tell you what, he was right. When we went out with our analytics product day one, I was being stubborn and we heard that out of the gate. Everybody said, hey, that's great. But, you know, we'd like a, a course that just helps the people that aren't actually rolling up their sleeves and working with raw data. They're just consuming it. You know, they don't really use that word consumers. I actually don't like the word data consumer. Um, I think it's more of like a, a reader or an interpreter audience. Those sorts of words I think are better. But anyway, uh, putting that aside for now, you know, what I was shocked by is in our first year, we actually heard, believe it or not, that we needed to address an audience even earlier than that. Not just at the point of, can you read a chart or a graph? Actually, what is data and how does it apply to me? And why is it something I should not be afraid of? <laughs> and so that was the impetus behind the fundamentals program. So the better part of last year was building those two programs that were uh, essentially prequels or precursors, prerequisites to the one that I thought I was going to start with, which is what we're working on right now. This, uh, this course around being able to actively convert data from its raw form into insights and wisdom using a variety of tools, using a framework we're trying to work with here to fine tune to get people, no matter what tool they're using, you know, because people use a variety of tools, right? That's the truth, no doubt. So how can we help them come up with a way and approach to not just do great things with tools, but to think with data? And so that's that's our goal now. But so that's, I guess, a long answer to your question, which is why are we addressing and how do we come to address some of these different audiences or personas, if you will. And that, that is really how that came about, uh, was RJ giving me a prediction that turned out to be dead right when we started interacting in the marketplace and realizing what people were asking for and what they needed. Um, so that's that's the story there behind the last, I guess, couple of years of development and, and evolution of, of our thinking about how we needed to help people more effectively speak the language of data. And I can strongly attest to the needs of those multiple approaches. I'm coming to it from obviously the sort of analyst developer perspective, which is the role I've served in for several years. Um, and at previous jobs, I would have, you know, executives often up to the C-suite that didn't consider themselves to be like numbers people. That's what they would call <laughs> themselves, which, right. which meant to them that they didn't like math and didn't feel comfortable with uh, math. And they associate data with math. Right. So uh, if data is like math, I can't do data. So you have to do the data for me, which means they not only would like you to sort of perform your analysis, but also make the choice for them, mm -hmm. which is ultimately oftentimes that last step of the journey, the ball has to be in their court. I've provided you with insights. You now as the business expert, take that insight and carry it the last mile for me and you know, make the, the choice out of this. Because if I make the choice, then what, what, why are you here? Mm -hmm. Right? Like I could be the executive. Um, but um, 
by by trying to educate the the recipients of of data insights, um, you're not only making the job of the analysts easier, but you're making those people's lives easier as well. Because I think so many people want to be able to be better at things, but don't know where to go, especially if there's not a resource. And by creating those resources, you're uplifting the entire community because if they are more capable of receiving um, analytics, that means the analytics that are created can also be better. Whereas um, you're hamstrung to a certain degree, if you know that your audience isn't going to be able to receive a lot, that means there's a lot more burden on you to not only perform more complicated actions, but then try to make them that much simpler as an output. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a language barrier, right? I mean, it's like trying to have a conversation with someone you don't speak the same language. That's definitely challenging. We can all attest to that. So how do you build that bridge right between those two worlds, the data world and the business world. And ultimately it helps if both are familiar to some degree, the analyst, as well as the executive decision maker with at least some rudimentary aspects of both of those worlds. Executives may complain equally that the analyst doesn't understand the business and what uh, the needs of the business are. And so it does help that analyst to be able to step away from the data for a moment and look around and understand where the organization is headed. What do the customers care about? What competitive elements do they need to think about? Uh, Those are critical uh, tools in the analyst's tool belt, actually, to know and have that context, that acumen. Equally, the executive does need to understand the world of analytics to some degree. You know, they don't need to be able to always crack open a self-service analytics tool or crank out code. That's probably not something they have time for, but they do need to understand the basics of some of the analysis that's being done and what questions to ask and how to probe. And, uh, you know, that's getting more and more complex. So I think everyone's feeling a bit intimidated by needing to know these different things. And so, you know, what are we doing to help close those gaps? How are we helping people feel that they are able to speak uh, to one another in a way that's the message lands and there's coordination there. You know, Claude Shannon in the 1940s, I believe, uh, wrote a really uh, seminal paper on this theory of communication and talked about this uh, essentially, you know, you have a signal and then you have a receiver and you've got a source of noise between them. And so thinking about it like that, you know, these are human interactions. And so I don't think we need to get too technical about the interaction. But yeah, there are sources of noise. There are, the message doesn't always land the way it was intended to. And so how can we look at those different aspects of the communication loop and figure out how to to fix some of the problems that have been going on that happen every day in organizations all around the world? Um, And so it's a human thing. And that's why I think you gravitated to it just like I did. It's, It's partly data, yes, but it's also in large part, a human question and and relates to communication and it relates to goals and objectives. Where are we headed? What do we know? What skills do we have? What are our attitudes? What sorts of things are we expecting from one another? So that um, allow me to piggyback off of that and talk about where things are going. So I attended an Edward Tufte seminar, I guess a year and a half ago. It's hard to tell at this point we're in COVID time. It's like 20 (laughs) years ago. I don't know. So, um, one of Tufty's big things, besides he was really into the document, which when you attend a meeting, you prepare like a three-page document, everyone reads it. It's like an Amazon thing that they do now. But the, uh, the other big takeaway from the meeting was Tufty was really obsessed with um, resolution and talking with high-res screens, we're going to be able to fit more on a screen than ever. And that means 
analytics are going to change, which I've got my own opinions about because there's a certain like ink on the screen ratio where you put too much on there, people turn out, like just check it off. Because um, if you clutter up a page, um, even if it's with relevant, useful things, the more that's there, the less people see. And um, particularly if you're not just really into it, you're you're not going to proceed any further. And I've done that with stuff I've seen by intelligent people. They've created stuff that could be worthwhile. But when I look at it, my brain just turns off. What do you see as sort of the what's coming in data? Like, I'm not saying like 10 years out, I'm not asking you to be a futurist, but like what what's uh, what's your big thoughts about the future of data? Well, that's a, yeah. So you started by uh, speaking to the notion that there are these sort of different artifacts or ways of communicating data to one another. I really like a paper by Jeffrey Heeren, Mike Bosta, actually Jeffrey Heeren, Edward Siegel called narrative visualization, telling stories with data. And in, in that paper, this is about uh, 10 years old now, but it's a really amazing research where they looked at data storytelling and specifically in the news, but they talked about these different genres, you know, whether it's a, think of it like a long form blog post where embedded within that article, there are visualizations and, or maybe it's a slideshow where you, you know, step through them one by one, or maybe it's a poster or some kind of a flow chart. So there's different ways. And they talk about these seven genres. You can tell the same story in different uh, ways in terms of the format or the structure of the, as you mentioned, document that gets produced and shared. And so when I was at Tableau and helping run Tableau Public, those were back in the days of like snowfall. This was this really influential New York Times piece talking about an avalanche here in the state of Washington where I live. And it was fascinating where as you scrolled down through the article, these charts sort of appeared and they moved. It was the first time we saw what we now know as scrolly telling or the fact that a data story slowly emerges little by little as you vertically scroll, which is a very useful form factor for phone. Then by the time I left Tableau, uh, the phone had become sort of this annoying little thing we needed to think about to really the main way that data stories were being crafted and told on the new, by news organizations. You know, that became the, the main uh, form factor they were thinking about. And that switched while I was at Tableau. So that's why Tableau uh, responded quickly, thankfully, to my team and launched the phone, uh, you know, uh, configurations and uh, have really took strides in helping make that possible. And I think the data world in general was wrestling with this idea, how do we make a data story compelling on these tiny little screens? And uh, can it be interactive? You know, I mean, these big dashboards we used to create now became so unwieldy on a phone that news organizations started to revert back to single charts, simple charts, and maybe in, the, in a way that was a good evolution. I think we're still working on that, you know, overall as a species, really, how do we take these complex findings, okay, and articulate that on these smaller form factors that people carry around in their pockets. So I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see more and more innovation there, uh, more um, strides. I think this, those strides started really back in like 2014, 2015. And I think we've come a long way already. I think there's still some more way to go because I think that that's a challenging form factor. You know, it's a very limiting form factor, which can actually be a blessing when it's constrained in that way. But I think there's more to go there. 
Uh, you know, there's this very fascinating interest in storytelling and I think presenting data in, a, in an engaging way, you know. I think we still have more to go there. There's a lot of research into that, which I'm encouraged to see. So my big thing with data literacy right now is how do we deal with the fact that we need to explain things to people that don't fundamentally understand the chart type, the data where it came from, or the encodings we're using, right? So I would like to see simple ways that people take a chart, let's say even a simple scatter plot. And how do you show that to a group of people that might immediately turn off as soon as they see all these dots on a screen and don't have any idea where any of it is coming from or what it means? How do you, in less than 20 seconds, orient them and have them nodding because they know exactly what that thing means? Uh, you know, Pew Research a few years ago did uh, an interesting study where they had a, a chart, a scatter plot of, it was showing uh, some dots and they were countries. And the question was cavities versus sugar consumption or something like that. You know, is there, and they asked uh, respondents of the survey to say, which of the following four statements does the scatter plot back up or, uh, or show, right? And so obviously one of the four questions, one of the four options is right, the other three are wrong. And it was something like 60% of, 63% of Americans were able to answer the question correctly. So that's a, that's a you know, relatively small number perhaps that you've got even as many as you know, two out of five of the people in your audience, at least if you're in America, don't even know what your scatter plot is about or how to read it. Well, given that, how do you now still go forward with your presentation and talk to them in a way where they're going to understand it? And so I, I think that that's something we need to think about, right? How do you bring people along and bring them into the dialogue when their starting point is, I don't know what this means. And how do you do that in a way that makes them feel empowered, not insulted? Uh, how do you do that in a way that makes it feel like they didn't just get condescended to or talked down to or quote unquote trained? And so those are things I think a lot about these days. I think there's some interesting approaches there we can we can develop. And to that end, um, looking at both your public portfolio as well as data literacy's public portfolio, you have a viz out there, which is a Hans Rosling homage, um, which I think effectively communicates some of what you're talking about. So Rosling has that famous uh, viz that he does during one of his TED Talks, which shows like GDP and life expectancy and countries sort of moving in animation as well, like the early... Uh, animated charts that sort of really caught on because uh, as a big fan of Rosling and his book, Factfulness, you know, just there's so much of the world that we already had these preconceived notions of based on data that was outdated, you know, um, and by him taking uh, these ideas and freshening them up and bringing the current data to both like World Bank and Davos and all these other organizations and saying, hey, look, we've been thinking about things wrong. Even the idea of like first and third world countries is ineffective. There's like four stages of you know, developmental growth. Um, but you've got this great viz out there and I'm going to put in the show notes. Uh, it's the header is building the animated scatter plot of like ex life expectancy versus urbanization. And the thing that's great about this is the original version of this chart is very much the Rosling chart where it's got like a paging function where you click on it and it shows countries shifting across this chart, uh, as the life expectancy, uh, moves to the right and the, um, the urban population increases moving upward. Um, but what you've done is you've stepped it out with different parameters to teach about the different aspects of the data. So you've got like color encoding to teach about the different regions. You've got size to indicate the different populations. 
And by clicking through and introducing each of those aspects one at a time, it's a great way to sort of talk a lay person through explaining what could otherwise be a very daunting chart, particularly mm -hmm. once it starts moving. I mean, looking at a scatter plot that's sitting still when you're a lay person, it's like, there's a whole lot of dots on the page. I don't know what that means. What's each of these? And then it starts to move that I know my impulse would just be, okay, I'm done. <laughs> but like way from the chart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you've taken it and you've made it uh, interactive and also winsome. Like so much of breaking down the barriers uh, to people not wanting to embrace a new idea is finding a way to break down um, the resistance of, I don't know. I'm never going to know. I don't want to be trained. I'm too old to learn a new thing or, you know, that's not my thing. I'm just no good at that. But you slowly chip away at it one little piece at a time to the end when you've hit step five and you've animated it, that you've now got this interactive chart that they understand because you didn't just throw it at them all at once. Is this sort of like your bigger approach as well? Just sort of, you know, introducing pieces and expanding on them? Yeah, I think that that step-by-step -step approach where you introduce one element or one encoding at a time in a smooth and fairly rapid way, I don't think it needs to take five minutes to show them, here's what these five different encodings are. You can do that in 20 seconds or less, I think. And, and in that way, someone who is highly proficient in scatter plots and what they mean, uh, even maybe more so than you presenting, uh, isn't going to feel like you've wasted their time or talk down to them when they're already past that point, right? But I think that that is one way that the learning to see data program, uh, our data literacy level one, we sort of do that with every chart, you know, let's just assume that we start from the ground up and let's just build them element by element. So you see the, the not just the progression, but why those additions actually show you more, tell you more, give you a new perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's one way to be able to help people um, see uh, maybe a more complex visual and be able to grasp it in a way that's not too cumbersome. Uh, but I think that there are other ways. I, I don't know. I, I need to learn more about that maybe. I think sometimes, um, again, this the way we did it here was through stepping through almost like uh, the animation and what Tableau launched on their product as well as eventually on the Tableau uh, hosted version on, in the browser, we asked ourselves, how can we use the movement of these marks, in this case, in the scatterplot circles, how can we use the movement of those, those marks to help tell this unfolding story as opposed to what was there before was uh, subtly, uh, maybe people didn't know, but when you move from one state to the next using a Tableau public visualization on the web, you'd have a tiny moment where there's nothing or a gray box, and then it would reappear everything in the new spa spaces, even with maybe the axes totally changed in their magnitudes, right? Uh, whereas, you know, uh, there is value, actually, there's analytical value in the animation showing you how things, are, where they were, where they're moving to, how much the scale and scope or magnitude might change. And um, those are things that add uh, analytical value, not just whiz bang factor, right? So, um, so yeah, I think that that's one way to use animation, use videos like Rosling did. I mean, we all are so inspired by this, uh, this just genius who I think, you know, the passion with which, which that, by the way, that's another way, you know, just the passion, the interest, the engaging. And, uh, I mean, he was, it was like, he was calling a horse race. He was so excited about what was happening and what it meant for the people in the audience, but also he thought through, like you mentioned, you know, the myths that he was busting and he was excited about 
helping them uh, see things in a new way that might actually be um, in some ways uh, not just enlightening but helpful for the for the global um, uh, development of various countries and so that's also part of it right just the enthusiastic way we can con uh, convey and it doesn't always have to be enthusiasm I just there's has to be that what is like the so what factor why is this important why does it matter and um, why do, does my audience need to know about it why should they care about it uh, and then maybe the next question being what should they do about it but uh, including those into uh, a presentation that also explains the visuals, you know, just like he did, you know, with his hands, he had a big old pointer, this, you know, uh, thing that he held up and showed where things were and where they were moving. And, and so, you know, it was very educational, but also exciting to watch and be a part of that presentation. So yeah, those are some things I think that we need to do uh, going forward as we continue to hone as a species, our skill of, of having a dialogue together using data. I think one of the great things about this chart and the, your method of teaching, um, there's a real power to juxtaposition. Humans are really great pattern recognizers and noticing things that are different. Like when we look at where's Waldo, like we're obsessed with picking out details and stuff. But as soon as you introduce two pieces of information, everything has grown that much more powerful than when you just have one. It's it's yeah. um, it's the, the whole is way bigger than some of its parts. So if I were to tell you our altitude in an airplane right now, that fact on its own is interesting, but it's not really indicative of what our story is, because if it was uh, lower a minute ago, then we're we're going up. But if it was way higher a minute ago, that means we're in a nosedive and about to crash like right into the ground. So yeah. by by having more than one piece of information, by showing different things compared to each other, you get so much more than if you were to just express that single piece of information, which is a fact and it's interesting. But without context, um, it's it's totally lost. And I think that's really great about this. But um, I'm going to wrap us and bring us to an end now. I have had so much fun talking with you about this. And before we finish up today, I want to ask, is there anything you'd like to promote or anyone you'd like to shout out? Yeah, well, um, I would like to shout out uh, the Tableau public team, Taha Ibrahimi, who took over uh, for and just took that platform to brand new heights. They have been doing an amazing job at continuing to build the community and evolve the product and platform in ways that is really encouraging for me to see that obviously when I left, it was in really, really good hands. And so that's awesome. So shout out to Taha. Um, let's see. Oh, shout out to Sarah Nell Rodriguez. She just launched a new website yesterday, bdatalit.com. Nice to see someone uh, so passionate about including and incorporating voices into the conversation that maybe perhaps hadn't felt welcome before. I think that's uh, something we need to continue to advocate for. And she's doing that very well. So uh, kudos to her for the effort and time she put into getting that started. And let be nice to see where that goes from here on out. Uh, and yeah, that's about it. You know, there's lots of stuff you can check out that we did on dataliteracy.com, but I don't want to turn this too salesy. So uh, we'll leave it at that. And, oh, and, and, and again, to you for what you're doing, getting this podcast going and helping to, uh, just, you know, add the, add the, the human voice to the dialogue. It's easy on Twitter to, I think there's, there's such a humanization component to hearing someone talk. I think that's what this clubhouse phenomena seems to be all about, you know, hearing someone's voice. So good for you for getting that going. And um, yeah, that's about it, I guess. Well, thanks for coming on again, Ben. Let's do this again sometime soon. Yeah. Sounds great, Zach. Thanks a lot. Bye everyone.
Data Plus Love is recorded and produced by Zach Bowders. Our music track is We Are Legends by Alex Stoner. Hey, you're still here. Um, you're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash D-A-T-A-P-L-U-S-L-O-V-E. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks for your patronage. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.